Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. To learn more about our church, please visit us online by visiting ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. As we jump into today's message, our hope and our prayer is that you'd be challenged and encouraged in your walk and relationship with Jesus. Now, let's jump into the word together. Now, we're continuing our study in the That Doesn't Make Sense sermon series, and we have, a, we have a couple more. We have this morning, we have next week, then we have the conference that's coming up. Hope you guys are going to be a part of that. Super excited for what God is going to be doing in there. And then we start Genesis. And I wanted to take a couple more weeks in this sermon series because, you know, the first three, it feels a little longer so we had Sanctity of Life, but... The first three were like some of those victory kind of stories, you know, David and Goliath, Gideon, even, even in his doubts, and sometimes we call him a coward, you know, but he, there was still victory in that. And we could get prone to think that that's what our Christian life should always be, that there's always going to be victory in every situation. And that's where sometimes in the Western American mindset, you could have that kind of name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, lip it, grip it. There's a hundred of those things, right? Where, you know, God will never allow me to go through something that's going to be painful or suffering or it's going to be a difficult. And and sometimes we get into situations like that. And what do we start doing? We start questioning God a little bit. Like, why are you doing this in my life? And so I wanted to right size this whole mentality of that doesn't make sense. Because just as much as, yes, there is victory in what David has done, there's there's still victory on other sides of the spectrum as well. And there's going to be things that God calls us to do as we walk with Jesus that we're going to say, well, that doesn't make sense because it hurts. That doesn't make sense because I feel like I'm the one losing. And there's so many people, just hear me, please. The number one issue I think that we have in the church is we have this false expectation for God to meet and keep promises that he never made. And the moment that he fails to meet our false expectations, we shake our fist at him and we walk away. Well, if God loved me so much, then, then why is my kid not walking with the Lord? If God loved me so much, why am I getting that diagnosis? If God loved me so much, why did I lose my job? If God loved me so much, then why did my marriage end in divorce? Like those are real struggles that we have. And I think we need to walk through and understand what is the biblical text. And that's why it's so important to understand what are the true biblical promises that we have. Because there's so many little Christianese things that we say to one another and they're not rooted in Scripture. And we live out a faith that was delivered to us with all good intentions, but was never rooted in Scripture. And that's important because so many people talk about, especially now in our culture with the young people, they're talking about deconstructing their faith. And every story that I hear, I'm on their side because they're deconstructing a faith that was never rooted in the person of Jesus. But for some reason, they've believed this bill of goods that it's the same. And so when you hear the the frustrations and the broken promises that they have in God, it's like, I'm with you. 
and we have an opportunity to, uh, as Blaze would say, if you remember that old youth pastor from back then, to represent Jesus and who he truly is, maybe not the faith that was handed to us, right? And so if you have your Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 5. This is right in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a mountain, sits down, and he starts teaching. And I believe he's done this sermon a few times. That's why sometimes you'll see a variance between Matthew and the book of Luke as well. Be like, why is it different? Well, because he probably preached this more than once. Just like this morning. If you would have sat through 8 o'clock service, and then this one and the next, they're all three going to be different. It's actually one of my favorite things about life group. Because we'll say, hey, what stood out to you in this sermon? And people say, oh, I like when you said this. And they'll say that. And other people will be like, he didn't say that. <laughs> well, we go to different services. And we're like, well, why didn't you say that in my service? Because it wasn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like I need to say something else in your service. You know, we need to talk about some forgiveness or a little, you know. And so it, it, it's going to be a little bit different every time. Like, and it's kind of fun to do that. And we've had a few people have to, they've sat through, had to, let me, you know, they have sat through a couple services and they're like, it's totally different. And it's like, now you're all thinking like, what's he saying in the other services? Are we getting the good sermon or are we get the bad one? Which one are we? I won't answer that. There you go. And so Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and the big idea, you know, because this is before he's rejected as the Messiah. This is some of the early parts of his ministry as Matthew is showing us the presentation of the Messiah. He's talking about kingdom living. What does it look like that we as citizens of another kingdom, but we live like that in this world? I mean, that's kind of the whole basis of our mission statement now. Kingdom before Calvary and then Jesus over everything. So Jesus tells us, seek first. So there's a priority. Seek first kingdom living before what would be better for us as Calvary or even individually. We hear John the Baptist say, I must decrease that he, Jesus, must increase. And so we want to be kingdom before Calvary. We want to be Jesus over everything in our life. And so he's talking about this kingdom living, and it probably sounds great. We have all these crowds of people that have been oppressed by not only Rome, but even you know, the Pharisees and the religious elite, and they just feel kind of less than a little bit, especially if you look at the life of the disciples. You know, they were all you know, kind of the lower of the totem pole you know, you, you, you went to be a fisherman because you couldn't cut it <laughs> at school a little bit. And, you know, as rabbis were picking their disciples to follow them, you know, some of these guys got passed over. And it's like, ah, to the fishing boats I go. Here we go. But then Jesus comes and he, he chooses them. So you have all these people that are maybe struggling a little bit. And then they start hearing, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And it's like, Blessed are the pure at heart. It's like, this, this is good. And then Jesus goes on. He's like, yeah, you're salt. Not you will be. You are the salt. You are light. It's like, yeah. And then he gets to verses at the end of it. Let's start in verse 38. Now he's talking about retaliation. So how do we act? How do we have kingdom living when people treat us not well? And it's not because of our sin, right? Like, there's so many people that uh, I heard this so many times as a student pastor be like, man, my parents are just persecuting me. I'm like, okay, easy. Like, calm it down here. Persecuting you? Like, I, I got grounded. I'm like, what'd you do wrong? 
What do you mean by that? And it's like, because I know you. I know you did something stupid. That's not persecution. Those are consequences because of your actions. You got a good parent. Now shut up, right? But so many times we think, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. No, sometimes it's just consequences because we make stupid decisions. But how do we respond when we didn't do anything wrong and we're still treated badly in our lives? See, Jesus had a word for that. He said, let me speak into that. Let me show you what kingdom living looks like. That if you are walking in paths of righteousness, if you are following me, if you are faithfully entrusting yourself to do what is right in your everyday normal life, and yet the world or maybe other people still treat you bad for it, yeah, you don't get to just do whatever you want. There's going to be a, there's a kingdom principle of how to live. And so Jesus says, verse 38, Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said. Now, Jesus said that specifically. Why? Because the Pharisees and those religious elite, they would put their teaching of the law higher than the Old Testament law. And so Jesus isn't attacking the law. No, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it, to fulfill it. But he is attacking their teaching on the law, right? And so I'm kind of the same way. Like we have all these things that have handed to us in our Christian faith that are not rooted in scripture. We absolutely need to attack that kind of teaching. You know, so like even this morning, kind of uh, poking the bear a little bit to the whole word of faith. Blab it, grab it. If we just have faith and God will bless us and, you know, if we're sick, we just need to have faith and we'll be made well. Like that's, that's not scriptural. That's not biblical. And we're absolutely gonna attack what was said Right, So Jesus is doing things. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So that concept is rooted in the Old Testament. Right, he, There was a, a little bit of a law of retaliation. So if somebody wronged you, you couldn't do more than what they did to you. Because let's just be honest. In every one of us, there's a little bit of a mob boss. Right? <laughs> oh, you wronged me? I'm gonna break your legs and burn your house down and shoot your dog. You know what I mean? Like, we, we don't wanna get even, we wanna get ahead, right? And we want that kind of mentality, except Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's kingdom living here. Let's talk about what it looks like. You've heard eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He goes, but I say to you, listen to the authority he has there. Do not resist the one who is evil. Hold on, that doesn't make sense because the whole church operates, I'm saying broad brush here, we operate as the thing that we should be doing is resisting the evil one. We need to hate everybody that doesn't believe us. We need to hate everybody that doesn't live like us. We need to resist all of that. We need to be communal where we all just live on one property and we don't need the outside world. Yeah, that's called a cult. (laughs) You know, some people already think that we're a cult. But let's not give them more reason to believe that. You know what I mean? Like, let's not be weird here. Like, let's be biblical. There's, now, if we're weird because we're biblical, that's one thing. But unless it's be weird because we're weird and, you know, cultish, like, let's not do that. So do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, Jesus. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Some crazy kingdom principles of how we should live when we're wronged. 
And the idea is that when a person insults us, let it be a slap on the cheek, right? We want to give back to them what they gave to us plus more. And we're like, well, when do I get slapped on the cheek around here? I'm like, and if you physically do, like, okay, let's no. I think one of the biggest areas of my life that I struggle the most is when my character is attacked. That hurts. And it can happen even in very small, faint ways. Like, you know, like there's times when my kids or my wife might say something and I get so offended because I feel like they're attacking my character. And, I, and I'm just quick to go right back and I'm going to point out everything bad about them and I'm going to show how I'm better than them and they better bow down, right? <laughs> Am I the only one? Don't we hate when our character gets attacked? And people are saying these negative things. I mean, you'd rather take a slap to the cheek than for somebody to say something cross about us, specifically within our character. See, Jesus said that we should patiently bear kind of insults and offenses like this. And we don't resist an evil person who's going to insult us this way. Instead, we trust God to defend us. See, when I'm so quick to defend myself and I think I won the argument and I'm off, you know, my little victory lap by myself to cool down, that's when the Lord grabs a hold of my heart. Says, you're so worried about your character and your integrity being attacked. If, the, if you really were a man of character and integrity, you wouldn't have to defend yourself. Oof. That if I really was a man of character, I wouldn't have to defend myself. That my character, my faith in Christ, let him defend me. I don't have to go to war. I don't have to give back what was given to me. That there's a better kingdom principle that is for us, and it's to turn the other cheek. It's to endure, not to resist this evil person. Why? Because I need to trust God in it. Let him defend me. But how many times we believe, yes, yes, there's a God. He has saved me. He's equipped me, and now I'm going to war. I got the armor on, I got the sword, and I'm ready to go attack. That's, that's not the spiritual battle that we're in. That's not what he's calling of us. We need to humble ourselves and how we respond when people do wrong against us and allow him to defend us. And you know how long it can go? Years. There was a situation I had in my very first ministry and I'll say it publicly, my wife was right. There it is. She warned me about a couple. I believe my wife has great discernment. She warned me about someone, said they will bring you trouble in ministry. Are you kidding me? They're going to be our biggest supporters. They're going to be great. We found new best friends. And then three months went by and she was right. But it wasn't until years later, even after we had left, and what my wife always reminds me, the truth will always come out. But we think it's our job to bring the truth out and the people that have offended us. And let me tell you something about yourself. And that's what we want to be able to do. But that's not kingdom living. That's not what God has called us. And so if we can, because think about it. We know later in the Gospels, Jesus is going to call his disciples and we are disciples of Jesus, right? If we put our faith and our trust in him, we are a disciple of Christ. We know later in the gospels, he's gonna tell them, 
lay down your life. Pick up your cross and follow me. Right? We know that's coming. They didn't, but we know that because we've read the Gospels. But if we can't turn our cheek, if we can't give up our cloak as well as our tunic, if we can't walk the extra mile, how will we ever deny ourselves and pick up our cross? If we can't do these small things that don't make sense sometimes, how will we ever do the greater thing that definitely doesn't make sense? That the path of discipleship and following Jesus is a path of sacrifice. How could we ever get to the point like Paul saying, I've been crucified with Christ. My life is not my own. And even later in Philippians to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How do you ever get to a moment like that? It's coming clear back to the very beginning, having biblical kingdom principles. Just turn your cheek, give up your cloak, and walk the extra mile. Because here's the idea. Like we're, This is a, real quick, just so we can frame it well, this is an in-the-family conversation, right? So if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you are part of the family of God. Now, if you haven't, it's a beautiful morning to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and become a believer, right? We, we are always ready for that. But this is for those that have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Now we're talking about what does our life look in response to our salvation. What I don't want is somebody here who has not put their faith in Jesus and think, oh, I need to live according to these kingdom principles in order to earn my salvation. No, 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 no. No, your next step is a step of faith in Jesus. So this is a family discussion, right? Let's frame it well. Now, if there's anybody not a part of the family, like it's good to hear, but it, we're, we're not obeying ourselves into salvation. We are, we as a family have already put our faith and trust, and this is what our lives look like in response to it. And so what we have to understand that if we can never turn our cheek, pick up our cloak, walk, or give up our cloak, walk the second mile, how will we ever deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus? Right? Because as apprentices of Jesus, and I love that word a little bit more than a disciple, like sometimes we ask, like, what's a disciple? Like, I like the idea of an apprentice. As we apprentice Jesus, as we are walking by faith in him, it's a faith that is simply trusting Jesus enough to do what he says. It's a faith as believers that is going to believe in Jesus for obedience to our life. So if he's calling us to turn the cheek, we're going to trust him in it. If he's calling us to give up our cloak, we're going to trust him in it. If we're going to walk that extra, if he's calling us to walk that second mile, we're going to trust him in it. Because here's the truth. God cares more about our silent obedience than our loud worship. That stings, doesn't it? Like, let it resonate. Let's walk it out. You can't go and live however you want, Monday through Saturday, in disobedience to what the Lord would have for us as a part of his family being saved and then come in here on a Sunday and, and sing the loudest, serve the most, be the happiest, and think that that will cause God to ignore our disobedience throughout the week. It is a daily walk. It's a daily bread. You know, what's that fun line? It's, it's a daily bread, not an occasional cake for a special occasion. 
It is a daily walk. And so he cares more about our silent obedience than our loud worship, which it is good to gather and to worship. But if we're doing this thinking that this is what he is and this is only what is required of us, we are missing the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus with our everyday lives. And so with the top initiative, the heart for the house, there's three main components to it. We want to be a home for the broken. We want to be an encouragement to the hurting. And we want to be a family for the follower of Jesus. And I'm going to pair it to these three things that Jesus has called to turn your cheek, give up your cloak, and to walk the extra mile. And we're going to kind of compare and contrast this. So let's talk about the first one, a home for the broken. Do you know the greatest struggle that we will have in trying to be a home for the broken? Where we're going to look at people in our community and the world around us, invite them to be a part of this Calvary community in the midst of their brokenness. We're not going to say like, hey, go clean your life up out there. You know, you got to do some, you got to do some work a little bit on your life and then you can come to Calvary and we would love to have you, you know, at that second level, you know, you got to work yourself up a little bit. You just, no, no, no. We want people in their brokenness to come as they are. And it's probably going to take quite a few weeks. Sometimes we put this, you know, this false expectation of a process that, oh, we just get them to church one time, and then they're going to walk out, and they're going to be this saint of a person. No, they're probably going to be the same cussing, mean, jerk of a person that's still living in their brokenness and sin probably for a few weeks, just like us. Did we walk out of church the very first time and be like, oh, look at me, I'm floating, walking on water? Not at all. And it's like, we loved that, you know, God allowed us to be in process for our lives, but we hate when you know, other people are in process because of their brokenness. And so for a home for the broken, that people in the midst of the things that they are struggling with, we want them to feel at home here. Well, how do, how do you feel at home anywhere? You know, you ever go to somebody's house and it feels super awkward and you almost kind of wonder, like, do they even want me here? Like, do I just need to leave early? Be like, yes, yes, you do. No. You go to some people's house and it's like, I could stay here forever. Don't right? But it, it just feels like home, and they're hospitable, and they're welcoming, and they're loving. That's what it means to be a home for the broken. I don't want people walking into Calvary and being like, I don't even know if they want me here. Like, this is just awkward. Like, nobody says hi. Like, I don't know anybody. I'm getting stares and looks and glaring. And then the best, this is what I love, right? And this is growing up in a little Baptist church, too. You have visitors come to church and they sit down because they don't know where to sit. And what some, some person come rolling up, you're in my spot. <laughs> oh, you want to start a fight in church? Yeah, you just sit down. How dare them, you know? He who has never been a part of the body come in and take your seat. We're like, I'll take your chair and throw it outside. You could sit out there. But in the midst of the brokenness, I mean, let's just be honest. They already feel shame and guilt. Didn't you? I know I did. I already felt like I was under the microscope. I already felt like I was left behind. Why are we trying to make it worse? The number one tool I think the enemy loves to use is shame. Why is the church so good at it? And so 
the greatest struggle we will have is the self-righteous will hate us for doing it. The self-righteous will hate us for being a home for broken people. But look at Jesus. He didn't let social status, he didn't let cultural norms dictate his relationships with people. He didn't care. And I love that. I love this quote. Satan's goal is to destroy our ability, as followers of Jesus, right? To destroy our ability to love people. Why? Because that's what makes us the most like Jesus. And so if we always have a little bit of contentment, a little bit of condemnation, a little bit of looking down our nose, a little bit of distant from those broken people, Satan wins every time. But we have to understand, no one's greater than their master. John 15, 20 tells us that. And if Jesus loved broken people and he didn't mind associating with broken people, why are we so scared of it? See, if we're going to be a home for the broken, yes, we are probably going to get slapped for it. Why are we so in fear? Why so many Christians walk in fear? Because their cheeks are too soft. I don't want to get slapped for this. Why? I definitely smacked Jesus. Did they not? Beat him for it. I tell the staff all the time, we need to have thick skin and a soft heart in ministry. What we can't have is soft skin where everything offends us and everything disturbs us and everything is just, oh, I cannot believe it. Get some thick skin about you. Get some rhino skin, old and wrinkly. You know what I mean? Like, you got to have like a knife that long just to get through it. You know, like, yeah, it has to be some effort to try to harm us a little bit. Get some rhino skin, but keep a soft heart. But I think the church is so afraid to turn its cheek for a lot of reasons. Now, the idea of turning your cheek, you know, in this culture, one of the most uh, offending things you could get is backhanded. Sorry, backhand. It wasn't really a strike of like, I want to harm somebody physically. Like nobody's getting knocked out by a simple backhand. It was more about shame and guilt. It was, it was far more of an emotional attack, right? And so what Jesus is saying is if somebody's trying to shame you for living rights and they backhand you, if you turn the other cheek, what's their only option to strike you is with an open hand, which is far more a respectable strike. See, kingdom living, we dethrone that power not by giving the same thing back or more. We dethrone it by humbling ourselves and trusting God. That if, yeah, they want to shame us. Do something different that doesn't make sense to the world around them. Turn the other cheek. And then we're called to be an encouragement for the hurting. The word encouragement means just to give hope. I hope Calvary, right? The encouragement of Calvary is that we would be an encouragement, that we would give hope to those around us. All throughout the Gospels, we see how much Jesus cared for hurting people. And so if we don't have a heart for hurting people, we don't have the heart of Jesus. We're called to do that. And when hurting people approached Jesus, he didn't blow them off. He never told them that they should only be concerned about correct doctrine. 
You know, there, we, we, we've had the opportunity in my years of ministry to step into some pretty crazy situations to help people that were hurting for a number of different things. And, and you'll talk to them, you know, and they'll give you a little bit of their story and, oh yeah, I grew up in church. And then you're, you're going to hear some crazy theology. Like, let's just be honest about it, okay? But I'm, I'm not trying to be the hands and the feet of Jesus for a theological uh, response, but we've heard some crazy theology of what people believe, and they're in the midst of their brokenness, and they're in the midst of hurting. And in that moment right there, like when we've, we've actually uh, helped some people that were homeless, I'm not telling you when, so you can't tie it to anything, but we were helping uh, some people that were homeless, and they, uh, they obviously knew we were you know, a church and a faith, and they really started spitting some crazy theology. But when they're homeless and have no food, that's not my opportunity to say, well, here, open up to Matthew. Let me correct your wrong thinking right now. You know, like, like we need to be wise a little bit about, you know, what is, what's the opportune moment to walk through that? Correct doctrine? Very important. Very important. And that moment right there to help homeless, hungry people? Probably not. Because, see, Jesus always met their needs with compassion, even if they believed different. And it, there's one thing that I've learned in ministry. It is that hurting people hurt people. Don't be shocked by that. You want to only want to be an encouragement to people that are not hurting? That's not encouragement. We're just patting each other on the back. We're just this little club where we walk around and just pat each other on the back and we give this fake encouragement to try to make ourselves look good, which is really actually only pride at that moment. Right? You see how crazy the deep this well can go? No, hurting people hurt people. We're going to be hurt by trying to be an encouragement to hurting people. And we can't keep this like faux godliness idea because sometimes when you're trying to help hurting people, this is what you hear in the church. Well, we don't want anybody taking advantage of the church. Can't have that. Why not? People took advantage of Jesus, did he not? Why are we so worried about being taken advantage of? Do you think everybody that rolled up at the feeding of the 5,000 was only there to hear an amazing sermon by Jesus? Do you think, you, know, you think every student that comes on a Wednesday night is to hear the amazing teaching of Sean and Z? You don't think it has anything to do with chicken tacos and pizza and cute girls? You're like, hold on, we got tacos on Wednesday? Hold on, I think I need to be a volunteer. Do we, I mean, why are we so worried about people taking advantage of the church? Did they not take advantage of Jesus? And we can't keep that kind of faux godliness. We're, why, we are not called to hold so tightly our cloaks and our tunics. If you're offended by this, you're welcome. <clears throat> Here we go. As the church... If we only pour ourselves out to those who would give something in return to us, we're not serving our community. We're merely establishing commerce. And so many churches only want to do commerce with their community. But think of the parable of the banquet and how many times Jesus was saying, go out and reach those that cannot give anything in return to you. Again, that's why the kingdom before Calvary. So you take Adventure Week. 
We pour all kinds of time and resources and people into this and think, what are we going to get out of these families? Nothing. Because it's not about that. What if they never walk into the doors? What if they never darken the doors of the church? Thank the Lord that he's omniscient and omnipresent and he's not held by the steel and two by fours and drywall of Calvary Chapel. It's not about that. That we want to be a kingdom impact. And it's not about us trying to have commerce with one another where, hey, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Like, that's not serving your community. I mean, even Jesus said that the Gentiles do that. Those without even a faith do that. Like, that's just called being friends. Help you with this, help me with that. That's not serving our community. But we as the church walk around so much holding on to our cloak and our tunic and we're so afraid to give even one of them up. And here Jesus is saying, if somebody's asking for the one, give both. Don't be afraid of that. Allow the Lord to defend and work in that. And even Proverbs, Proverbs 11 tells us, verses like 24, 25, paraphrasing horribly, that if we are a blessing to others, we'll be blessed by that. Now, what that doesn't mean is if we give, then we're going to get more. That's not what that means. And so many times we read the, prom, the Proverbs with wrong motives. We read Proverbs like they're promises, right? So take it in parenting. Proverb that says, you know, raise your child up in the way they should go, and they'll never depart once they get older. And then there's a few of us that have adult kids that are not walking with the Lord. And we think God broke his promise because of Proverbs. Proverbs is a principle, not a promise, and so if we give freely and we are a blessing to our community and those are around us, let it be individually, let it be us as Calvary, you know, corporately, the principle of Scripture is that we will be blessed because of that. And every time we've had the opportunity to serve in our community, not to establish commerce, it's been a blessing. We usually come back from some of those things. We're exhausted. We're wore out. We have more work to do than less work. But God was faithful in it, and we are blessed because of it. So we're not just talking about money, but our time, our talent, our treasure. And there are so many hurting people, and there's so many ways that we can encourage and to give hope, and there's so many ways that we can get hurt in doing so. And how many of us are gun-shy that we don't want to help hurting people because, oh, I remember that one time I tried to help somebody and then they did all this and, the, and then we get a bad taste in our mouth and we never want to do anything ever again because that one bad person. Hurting people hurt people. And when we have that mentality that we're not going to do anything else because somebody took advantage of me, Satan won. And you quench the spirit in your life. You put the basket over your lamp and you said, you know what? If there's enough light for the basket, that's all I care about, but I don't want to be a light into the community. And Satan won. Why are we holding so tightly to our cloaks and our tunics? Because here's the idea. If we're too attached to our cloak, you might not be connected to Jesus as much as you think you are. Almost like a dashboard light in your car that if you're holding so fast to your tunic should be a warning system. Am I really holding fast to Jesus? Now, every one of you in here, myself included, we have to understand, but what's my cloak? 
What's my tunic? What am I holding so fast to? Sometimes it's schedules. Sometimes it's reputation. Sometimes it's, it can be a hundred different things that we hold to so much more than our faith in Jesus. Or we try to mix it. But I'm just praying the Holy Spirit convicts all of us, shows us what's our cloak. And then lastly, the family for the follower of Jesus. So in this culture, Rome, a Roman soldier, had quite a pack. He had a lot of stuff that he would carry around. And at any time, he could grab anybody that, you know, that they were occupying. And so in this context, it was Israel. He could grab a Jew at any time and tell him, carry my stuff for one mile. Right? And there's nothing you can do that. That was the governmental law at that time. You know what Jesus doesn't say? Rebel against the government. Don't do anything that they tell you. They're all brainwashed and out for your money. Which almost sounds like the church in America today. And we get so partisan that we lose sight of being followers of Jesus. Which is not good. Because we're putting our identity into our country more than our identity and our Savior. Sorry to step on some toes there. What's Jesus tell us to do when the government is oppressing? Walk that extra mile. See, for that first mile, that Roman soldier, I think, absolutely would have been just jeering and making fun of and just taunting that Jewish person the whole way. Oh, look at my little dog over here carrying all my stuff, just saying all kinds of nasty, horrible things. And like normal, they'd get to the end of a mile and he'd take all the stuff off. I'm sure that he was upset, ready to fight, but he knew he couldn't because he'd just be killed for it and just humiliated for that whole time. And think, how long does it take to walk even a flat mile with a bunch of stuff? Like that would have been a very humiliating moment. And that could happen at any time. You would avoid Roman soldiers. You'd see if you want to walk in the other direction so you didn't get called out and have to walk. Now, here's the kingdom principle that Jesus is saying. Hey, if you're asked to walk a mile, go a second. Now, think of that scenario. So he's been making fun of you the whole way. You get to that mile marker, and you just look over and say, how about one more? Hold on. What? Yeah, come on. One more mile. You're not to your destination yet. I'll carry it another mile. And now the Roman soldier has nothing to say because he's never been treated this way. Somebody's never responded to him in this way. There was probably a normal response that he was used to and that wasn't it. And now he's intrigued. I wonder if they kind of walked in silence for a while until one of them, probably the soldier said, why are you doing this? You are not held liable. You don't have to. You're not under obligation to carry this for a second mile. Why are you doing that? And that's where you say, to Rome, you're right. I am not obligated. But to my Savior, I am. Unto walking with Jesus is to walk that second mile. Because now, instead of, you know, dropping the stuff at a mile, yelling at him, running away so you don't get killed, whatever it would be, now you have that whole second mile to share who Jesus is. And we have to remember who was fascinated by Jesus' love for people and who hated him for it, right? Because 
See, I think Pharisees hated Rome. That's why they wanted a Jesus who was the Messiah that was going to overthrow Rome. And so if they would have seen a Jew having to carry a Roman soldier stuff for a mile, they would have hated Rome. Look at this oppression. This is why we have our hope in a Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome and get us out of this. We don't have to be these, you know, considered these dogs of the Roman Empire and all. Like they would have hated Rome for it. But if they would have watched the Jew walk a second mile, guess who they would have hated then? Why is he doing that? Why is he associating with Rome? Doesn't he know his lifestyle? Doesn't he know what he's about? Don't you know what he believes with his polytheism and his many gods and all the different, don't you know what he eats and he can't even be around him? And now the shift would have been focused that the Jew would have been hated for the second mile. But not by Rome, but by the Pharisee. And we have to understand that in every one of us, in our hearts and minds, there's a little bit of a Pharisee that we have, that we need to keep kicking off the throne of our heart. And we have to keep attacking that legalistic Pharisee mentality that we, because now that we're saved, are above and better, and we need to keep a distance from anybody that's not like us. That was never Jesus's heart. And so when we look at Jesus, when he loved people, who is fascinated by that? other sinners and tax collectors and broken people. And who hated them for it? Turn to Matthew 9. So if we're in 6, let's turn to 9. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. So this is Matthew writing the gospel according to him. And I love that here he kind of gives us a small indication of how he became a part of this whole movement. And it says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. I believe Jesus passed him many times. This is not the first time Matthew has ever seen him or heard about him. But it is the first time that Jesus looked to him and said, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now, one of the other gospels tells us that at this moment, Matthew holds a party at his house. Matthew is a traitor of the Jewish people because he collects taxes against his own people for Rome. He was hated. One of the, like, that was the worst thing that your kid could go into was that they would be a tax collector. And so who do you think he's friends with? Other tax collectors and sinners. So if he's hosting a party, guess who he knows to invite? More sinners, right? So Jesus then goes to this party. And it says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I think one of the main reasons why the church does not want to follow in being the hands and the feet and the heart of Jesus is because we're so afraid that the Pharisees in our congregations will condemn us because we're condoning sin. We talked about this in life group, kind of something I was just sharing from my own heart that, you know, the moment that we would, you know, try to be a home for broken people, let's just take because it was sanctity of life. What about people, young ladies, young men that either considering an abortion or had an abortion, you know, they even got pregnant out of marriage, 
You know, why would we allow them into our congregation? Why would we want to show love to them? Like, pastor, you need to teach on fornication. You need to teach on the biblical component of marriage. You need to attack lust. And like, there's, that's a lot of sin right there that you need to speak out against. But who is Jesus hanging out with? See, we don't want to love people like that in the midst of their brokenness. Why? Because the Pharisees will condemn us and say, oh, look, there's Pastor Nick, there's Calvary being soft on sin again, just letting anybody in their brokenness into the church, doesn't even say anything to them, welcomes them. They're hosting baby showers for them fornicators. Yep, and I'll decorate the church too. Unless we want to turn the bell back on every 35 seconds. Yeah, what about people that are confused about their gender and their sexuality? Yeah, they need to get that right with the Lord out there. They need to clean their lives up. They need to be heterosexual and married before we allow them into a place like this. How about you just deal with your own lust? So we, we don't want to allow anybody in process whatsoever because we're so afraid that we're going to be condemned for condoning that kind of behavior. And so we refuse to be the hands and the feet of Jesus because we don't want the church to think that we're soft on sin. For me, I say let's be the church that loves its enemies, its neighbors in such a crazy way that others think that we lost our mind. Right? So I'm going to use two kind of fancy terms. Orthopraxy means right living and orthodoxy means right thinking or right doctrine. Okay? I want our orthopraxy to be so outrageous in loving those that are broken and hurting that the religious Pharisees, let it be here or any other church that hears about us, I want our orthopraxy to be so crazy in love for the broken that the religious think that we lost our orthodoxy. Look at them, they've just taken the Bible and thrown it out. They're letting any kind of sinner, tax collector, prostitute, leper, blind, mute in there. Goodness gracious, that church is going to hell in a handbasket. I want them to think that. Because if so, did we really lose our doctrine? Or, or did it finally, after 2,000 some years, align to the heart, into the life of Jesus. The broken don't care about our right doctrine. That's an in-house conversation. But let's be so crazy in our orthopraxy, our love for them, when they're fascinated. But why are you guys so different than any other church that I've ever even associated with? They're asking us to tell him about who the biblical true Jesus is. And I think the number one way that we can allow that inner Pharisee in us more space is because we forget who we were and we have lost sight of the grace that saved us. And so anytime we counsel anybody and we disciple anybody or we evangelize to anybody, we get to look at them and say, I was there too. You are not different than me. We were actually probably on the same side of the Savior than we are distant from each other. 
But we, as the church, one of the things that I struggle with the church, we're so scared that somebody's going to attack our character. That we sit back apathetic, holding fast, trying to defend ourselves instead of walking in obedience to Jesus. And so, let it be walking the extra mile, giving up our cloak, turning the cheek, whatever it's called, as we are a home for the broken, an encouragement to the hurting, and a family for the follower of Jesus. I'm just asking, who are we walking with? How can we ever walk that extra mile if we never take our next step? And so we as the church, you know, what it means to have a heart for the house is to understand even the same thing that Jesus said when he walked into the temple. And he said, this was supposed to be, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. And look what you've turned it into. You know, we walked through Revelation and all these churches got letters. I think it's time for America to get a couple. And look what you have allowed the church to be. I think, it, you know, we, we say things like that. Oh, if Jesus returned right now, do you think he'd come to Calvary? Oh, I hope not. That'd scare the snot out of me if he walked in the back doors. It was like, you know, Paul, I know, the disciples I get. Jesus walks in, I'm scared. But think of when the disciples were asking Jesus, like, what about those guys over there? They're baptizing and all that. Should we stop them and do that? No, no, no. They're, they're doing good work. Don't stop that. How about we just focus on what we're supposed to do? So if Jesus returns, I would love that kind of mentality. Yeah, we don't need to go to Calvary. They're doing good work there. Well, let's go address some things at other places. Again, not about us. But what would it honestly look like for a church to truly take a biblical approach and what it means to serve its community with grace, love, and truth? I'm gonna pray for you. Still got one more week of this. And if you thought this was the heavy one, skip next week. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you. Those are some dangerous prayers, even in that, Lord, that because you loved us in such an unconditional way when we were broken, lost, hurting, in the midst, covered in our sin. We know that you are calling us to share that same love to those that are still in their sin, Lord. That we are to reflect your heart to the world. And I pray, Lord, wherever we are getting it wrong, convict us massively with the presence of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we do trust you. Not just the winds of victory like David and Gideon, but we trust you even when our character and our integrity is being attacked, even when people are slapping us, taking from us, oppressing us to walk that extra mile, I pray that we, as your church, would rise above all of that, live according to these kingdom principles and allow you to defend us. Give us that kind of faith, Lord that we would simply be your hands, your feet, your hearts to the hurting, to the broken, 
to the orphan and the widow that needs a family. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...